los luchadores. De dos a tres caídas, sin límite de tiempo. Asha. La arena estaba de bote en bote, la gente loca de la emoción. En el ring luchaban los cuatro rudos, ídolos de la afición. La arena estaba de bote en bote, la gente loca de la emoción. En el ring luchaban los cuatro rudos, ídolos de la afición. El santo, el cavernario, dudemos y el bulldog. El santo, el cavernario, dudemos y el bulldog. Y la gente comenzaba se escuchaba en ardecina sin cesar Métele la Wilson, métele la Nelson La quebradora y el tirabuzón Aplícale el candado, pícale los ojos Cállale los pelos, sácalo del ring Métele la Wilson, métele la Nelson La quebradora y el tirabuzón Aplícale el candado, pícale los ojos Cállale los pelos, sácalo del ring Y aguas con el perro guayo And welcome to episode number two of Lucha Classica. This is Vandal Drummond along with Frito, Fredo Esparza. And how are you doing tonight, Fredo? I'm doing good. I won't comment on our last podcast that we just recorded, so. <laughs> no, and. Uh... We have a lot to talk about. We're going to stick to this being Classica, which is actually going to be, <laughs> this is going to be your um, your bread and butter where you're going to make your your, your name, your reputation on. Yes, I was. Uh, we were talking very current lucha recently, and I had uh, one of the worst space cadet moments I ever had. I could not remember seeing a match that I really enjoyed a few months ago, and... I don't know what to attribute. Uh, I'm sober. At least for the moment. I mean, right now, I'm, I, I wasn't doing the podcast yeah. on any sort of substance. And uh, But see, this show, it's got stuff that you're more interested in, like the classic stuff. You're not... Yeah, I've watched so much less wrestling, and just not that I think... You know, I also I also think that's probably what happens, because you're not watching as much, so you kind of forget about what happens... It's not as it's not something you're keeping in your mind. Yeah, like, I'm good at remembering, if not specific dates, general dates for things that happened up to around 1993 when it comes perfect. to professional wrestling. <laughs> yes, exactly. Perfect for this show. But after that, you know, I can't remember if something happened in 1999 or 2003. It's just, it's just. Uh, well, we had that one show where we were talking about um, the time we met Volador Jr. You were trying to remember when it was, and we were like, what? Yes, yes. <laughs> you were off a few months. In fact, the one time where I was so happy I was correct was when um, we saw Volador versus Sombra. Yeah, you were right. <laughs> I was actually right, and I, it, it, it made me feel so yeah. good. It's like, I, I wasn't... Uh, that for that one evening, I wasn't uh, Pete Doherty getting job. Yeah. I was uh, the squasher. Uh, so anyway, we're going to focus on several different items today. Yeah, we're still sticking to like the couple of older stuff. One old topic, 
um, and then Titanes del Ring and WCW. Um, I think the next show we're probably going to change it up a bit more just because I think we're going to be tired of talking about WCW. <laughs> I mean, you know, like just switch it up so people don't Absolutely. think it's... Absolutely. So people don't think, oh, they're just going to talk about WCW all the time and it's like... <laughs> no, we're going to try to keep this as variety-oriented yeah. or throw variety into yeah. it. Um, the first episode I talked a lot about the origins of Lucha Libre before uh, the Ludabrath... Empire when John McIntyre was promoting in El Paso, and John McIntosh, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> McIntyre. Oh Jesus! Oh boy, do I need help? <laughs> Don't worry. That the last show you called him Joe McIntosh. Also. <laughs> oh boy, what an award I'm going to win these days. John I want you to. I want you to get awarded for get a, get nominated for a podcast award as the. As the most forgetful podcaster. <laughs> uh, maybe the most entertaining podcaster, yes. but for the wrong reasons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, see. So last episode, yeah, we talked about El Paso promoter John McIntosh, who really were, helped develop the first stars of CMLL. And I did not know it at the time, but he was the promoter that inspired Salvador Luderoth to begin a full territory in Mexico. And, you know, since that era of history is covered by historians who like to focus on the big national and international guns, the Strangler Lewises, the, uh, the Frank Gottes. Pardon me, I have dry mouth here. And yes, I'm sober. I have dry mouth and I'm sober. Uh, I thought it would be really a lot more interesting to find out about a lot of the people in the business who really made a lot of contributions and uh, are pretty much forgotten except for the occasional eccentric uh, uh, historian like myself. And... Actually, it's going to take a lot more researching to find out about this Macintosh character. It was the days of kayfabe. Yeah. You had to really search to find news where you could read between the lines of why so-and-so was getting pushed. Uh, it sounded like a pretty solid territory at the time. And... Uh, since I have a ton of footwork to do to learn more about that era, and um, <laughs> it'll probably be uh, a long, at times monotonous, but I look forward to it. So I'm going to focus on somebody who was actually a hit out here, specifically in California. Uh, he wrestled under the name Jimmy El Pulpo. I mean Jimmy the Octopus, <laughs> and I first read about him in an old issue of Boxy Lucha, that one column they had called Bienvenidos a la Pasado, uh -huh. where they'd go over one of the pioneers in professional wrestling, and they did a story on Jimmy El Pulpo, which I was, you know, doing my best to decipher. So my Spanish still sucks. 
Uh, well, Pulpo started his career, it appears he started for the Luderos in Mexico in around 1933. And uh, the, what intrigued me about this particular story is at the end of the story, they're saying he went to California to try to make a name for himself, and we never heard from him again. And, you know, typical wrestling magazines, I figure, well, it's like the Bill Apter thing. You know, he'll search out Mil Moscaris, but if there is another Latin star who just is, up and disappeared, yeah. he's he like, doesn't care. Huh, I disappeared. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're, he'll put him in the "Where are they now?" say question. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Of his magazine. You know, I did a lot of research from results to any articles I could find on him, and what's interesting, while his career took off in Mexico and when he's in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, the big metropolitan cities, anytime he was in the areas of Fresno, Bakerfield, Stockton, he was always billed as the hometown boy. So he, like a lot of Luderoth's early stars, he actually was a Mexican-American, born in Fresno. Oh, wow. And... Uh, very interesting because at the time, you know, he's called the octopus because he was a very light wrestler and apparently a tall, very thinly built wrestler, which a lot of promoters just didn't go for back in the yeah. day. Especially L.A. territory, they're, you know, doing heavyweights. Uh, in fact, the promoter, Lou Darrow, tried to book... Uh, Charo Aguayo as his you know, lead Latin heel and I actually found a uh, a newspaper article where he was quoted as saying uh, you know Aguayo just didn't have it he wasn't big enough which is you know I've heard a lot of things about Darrow <coughs> in uh in a business filled with crooks, from what I understand, he's up there. <laughs> um, and if he didn't recognize uh, greatness in Francisco Aguayo, which a lot of promoters swear by, uh, then I can only imagine maybe they had a falling out. Because the guy that Darrow eventually replaced to really push as his Latin heavyweight was a guy named Vincent Lopez, who... Uh, I just heard from secondhand researchers who said he was mainly a brawler, uh-huh. where Aguayo was actually uh, an incredible wrestler and brawler. Well, so what makes Jimmy El Pulpo really unique was he was he got a heavy push from Lou Darrow and all the promoters in the SoCal area, and <clears throat> it's interesting because. He really stuck out, you know. Uh, he looked like he had some height, very thin, and he got some really big pushes. I mean, big enough pushes in the L.A. area that I wouldn't expect people to recognize, recognize his name alongside Jim Londos, you know, Lewis. But he had a really good track record here in the state of California. Ventured out... Uh, to Colorado, where he went over for a while. And when I'm reading the uh, newspaper accounts of his matches, you know, and again, pre, you know, uh, when Kayfabe was alive and well, even though 
the newspapers would often acknowledge, you know, this is all fun and games, this is yeah. a show, you know, these guys are good dancers, I wonder if they can wrestle that kind of, <laughs> you know. Um, I noticed on several occasions they had mentioned Jimmy El Pulpo wrestled so-and-so to like a 30-minute draw, and often they would say, like, this was the match to watch. These guys never got tired. Uh, so just judging on the things that I read, sounds like he was a real workhorse. Also sounds like he is somebody with incredible stamina and must have been pretty dynamic to be able to carry a 30-minute um, match. Some of these were like second or third on the bill. Yeah. That he... He must have had a real dynamic style that really wowed people. If you can wow the newspaper writer who probably doesn't give a rat's ass about wrestling, yeah, there's something there. Uh, the other interesting thing is, as they describe some of the moves he did, uh, you know, he did a a flying body scissors where where he'd leap in the air and take the guy down. Yeah, with the yeah, a lot of drop kicks. And so I'm assuming he's somebody who uh, just doesn't get mentioned for high flying or anything. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it sounds like, you know, Cause what, when was this? The, the 1930s. 30s. Think about that. Oh, absolutely. That was before, like, even Ricky Starr, really, right? Yeah. Ricky. I mean, it makes me wonder. Like, I know guys would do flying things like they would tackle each other Argentina like Rock uh, those yes, guys those guys yes. were more known for introducing that in the United States yeah and often the groundbreakers are the ones who never get recognized yeah and from the way they describe what he's doing of course there's no term like a flyer back then but it looks like you know he or somebody from his generation was pro probably introducing some of these you know, more high-flying... Well, not high-flying, but moves that were more aerial. A little faster-paced. Yeah, faster, yeah, faster-paced. Even uh, in San Bernardino uh, wrestled Jim Londos for the title and uh, dropped to two straight falls. So he's somebody who was pushed toward the top but was never relied upon as the sole Latin draw. That was kind of... Uh, reserved for Vincent Lopez. Yeah. Although there was some hype in the paper that Strangler Lewis was going to take Jimmy Pulpo under his wing and teach him this, that, and the other thing. So clearly at one point they did talk about like giving him an honest to God push. Like, How long was he around? Do you know more? Have you... That's where it gets interesting. Early 30s. 33, I think, is the early state I found. And uh, remember when I said that Boxalucha just said he seemed to just disappear. Yeah. Well, I found steady results for Jimmy El Pulpo up until 1948. Wow. And bam. Gone. Nothing after that. And I've searched and I've searched. I found no mention of Jimmy El Pulpo. And it's not like he... <clears throat> I was going to say maybe he joined the military, but that was way after all that stuff. Yeah, I think, 1940 was after that, so right, exactly. Although and, there was and, other, there was other, yeah. Uh, but I don't know his. his my, my first assumption is he he just stuck with a day job because I know yeah. that for a while when he was wrestling in the Fresno and Bakersfield area, one of the newspapers says that he had just gotten work at 
uh, one of the munition plants during World War II. Yeah, so that probably... So that's probably what happened, but it is so odd to just see the just see that the name just vanishes completely with no mentions not even like a where are they now type of feature right. from like some re- some magazine or newspaper looking to find in fact the only reference like that i found was they were tearing down some old uh, movie house in i want to say it was visalia and there's an older journalist writing about all the fun times he had a kid at the uh, at you know the theater and all the plays he saw and the wrestling matches that you know featured people uh, like Dean Denton and Jimmy El Pulpo. Oh wow! But that's the only mention I could find. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, after nineteen forty-eight, this reporter is now dead, so it's no point in asking. Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I think that article I found was about like twenty years old. Yeah, yeah. So that, and I have a feeling that promoter yeah. was if he saw Jimmy El Pulpo, he must be yeah. a very old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and might be up there in the clouds yeah. now. Or the oldest living person. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, in, in my research, I got a hold of some uh, press photos of him. Oh, really? Yeah, some through eBay. One of the most interesting ones is, is you know, him sitting in his corner between rounds of a match. L.A. did the round system for mm. every now and then. And on the back, in handwriting, it said Jimmy El Pulpo, who was, you know, one of L.A.'s greats. And the person even jotted down uh, something like way much better than anybody gave him credit for. Oh, wow. And there's one photo I saw that was hard to look at because it's one of those photos that even if you don't know the business that well, you see him lying on the ground in a really awkward position, just holding onto his arm, looking like he's in pain. (laughs) And it doesn't look worked. Like, it looks like this guy's in real pain. You see this kind of muscular guy just kind of looking down at him, kind of... What's with, going on? <laughs> I think that's exactly what he was doing, because yeah. I, as I was doing more research, I found out that uh, the guy he was wrestling was a guy named uh, Dr. Patrick O'Callaghan, who... Uh, I think uh, got got gold. I think it was in the 1928 Olympics for the hammer throw. He was, oh wow! Yeah, and uh, the dude became really famous just from the hammer throw on the track and field uh, team in, in uh, 28. And I think he tried a whole bunch of different careers. He wanted to be a boxer when he came to the states, and he wanted to be a wrestler. And uh, when I found coverage of the match, it, it talked about the match ending rather suddenly and my assumption it's another one of those things where you got somebody into the business who really didn't understand exactly how it works and broke his arm so (laughs) that's possible and back then it happened more often than oh definitely definitely well that well that's why i don't know if you remember there's an indie show where they wanted me to wrestle a guy who was uh ran a karate school and yeah was learning to work and I said no, thank you. Just because I've seen that happen so often, where the where the the newbie in the biz is not trying to hurt the other person, they just don't get. It. They don't know. They don't know, and they they're trying to do too much, and nobody's told them they don't know. It's so. Yeah, I don't think we would have wanted you like 
show to come out of that with like a, like your arm out of its socket or something. <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> like I'm, broken ribs. <laughs> it might be entertainment for others, but yeah. it wouldn't be for me. Yeah. The other, the other, uh, one other uh, thing that I'd, I'd love to bring up is um, what do Jimmy El Pulpo and Hacksaw Jim Duggan have in common? They both carry two by fours to the ring. I wonder if Jimmy El Pulpo <laughs> no. two by four. I have to go back and look. <laughs> Did they both yell out "ho"? <laughs> <laughs> Every wrestler, Every wrestler has that hoe. Oh. And, uh, and then they say, oh, no, I'm sorry, I meant rat. Yes. Rat, rats, rats. No, he has something common in common when on January 25th, 1938, he was traveling uh, from Los Angeles to a match in Calexico, which, you know, way out, I want to say, is it Victorville area? One yeah, one of towns? those. <laughs> One of those cities that people, like, want to leave. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he and his traveling companion were pulled over, and uh, I read conflicting articles. One, that he was given a speeding fine, uh, and two, that he and the person he was riding with was kept in jail overnight because they had a 45 and had a permit, but for some reason the officer wasn't buying it. Um, well, here's, here's the meat of it. Uh, Eugene Munoz, known as Jimmy El Pulpo, and Luis Mayo, his professional partner, or opponent, <laughs> were on their way to tear each other apart in the ring at Calexico. Both were booked on charges of carrying concealed weapons, but both convinced police they had permits to carry firearms. So, he was a, a Jimmy El Pulpo was a babyface who was traveling with his heel opponent and got pulled over. The difference is, he didn't get fired. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hacksaw got fired and rehired, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was all for, you know... Just for show. For show. Uh, anyways... <clears throat> I leave the Jimmy El Pulpo segment at that because there's still a lot I think out there to learn about his career, but I'm going to keep trying to find out what the heck yeah. happened to Eugene H. Munoz uh, after 1948. And so far I have turned up zilch. <laughs> so this is going to be uh, this is going to be a fun research product. And I, yeah, I, I, next time I talk about Jimmy Pulpo, I'm gonna do it when I uh, have something straight to read with all the missing pieces. Yeah. And that is the story so far of Jimmy the Octopus. And now is the Titanes in El Ring segment where I cover uh, either an angle, a television episode or the various wild characters that were featured on Argentina's flagship wrestling show the most pop uh, the most famous promotion most successful promotion ever in Argentina and now I know we gave you the lowdown on Argentina wrestling in the last episode and I think it's fitting 
for the first focused episode to talk about the character known as La Momia. La Momia, translated to The Mummy, was uh, one of Martin Cardigan's inspirations after talking to a fellow Argentine wrestler who had just come back from the United States. This wrestler told Cardigan about a character playing a mummy in the ring, and I'm assuming he was probably referring to uh, journeyman Benji Ramirez, Ramirez, who did that gimmick for quite some time. Where at? Where? Where did he do it? He uh, he did it here in California. That was like a, that was a little later, wasn't it? Because when did La Momia first show up? Oh, you mean for Martin Cardigan? Yeah. That didn't happen to, to, until around 1965. So, I mean, that other guy had to have done the mummy like long before that, right? Yes, yes. Wow. Uh, and apparently, the funny and apparently, like look at like guys like Jim Cornette who get offended at character. I think it's mostly just Jim Cornette act, overreacting to stuff. I think so. But too. it's like it's like there's been mummy. There, that means the, a mummy existed before like 1965 in the United yes, States. Yes, so like, something I didn't know until recently. Uh, Mickey Doyle told me that back in the day, Benji Ramirez, he might have been covered with bandages, but he was kind of like the L.A. Park of his day. Really? Not, not where he's probably as good a worker as L.A. Park, but he said that guy could, you know, wrestle for an hour, hour and never get winded. Wow. Uh, so Cardigan, Cardigan really pretty much put Titanis in the ring on TV in 1962, and he, you know, when you read the list of names and... Uh, angles on the roster. It sounds like he didn't go full-fledged wacky until around 1965 or 66. And it was around that time where, you know, one of the uh, journeymen, a wrestler called Ivan Kowalski, who, you, you know, played the heel Russian in Argentina, uh, did the mummy gimmick. And it sounds like that gimmick got over really well until uh, Kowalski passed away suddenly in 1968. And while there still was a presence of a wrestling mummy, it wasn't until 1972 when Martin, like, how would you say, gave the mummy a new paint job, a new look, and a new story. Mm -hmm. And... This was one of the the coolest wrestling outfits I had ever seen. What was the story behind him? Like, was there like, did they actually show a skit of him like making his way to the promotion or something? <laughs> yes, and it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, they didn't do it at the arena. He had a big press conference where <laughs> he was back. <laughs> well, Martin Cardigan comes and says, you know, I have something really uh, amazing to show show you guys. So he had people go. I think it was like a dockyard, like a, a yeah. At a ship, and they lower this big crate, and they open up, and the mummy. That's fucking great. Out. I know, isn't that awesome? Yeah. <laughs> you don't get that in AAA or uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> or exactly. WW or anything like nowadays. It's like everything's so done to a certain. way. I know, like, and a little too, little too contrived. Yeah. And Cardigan was just a master of being able to drum up publicity and business. Well, this mummy got over so well with the Argentine audience and well let me specify 
the way they booked Lamomia was each week they would introduce him, and they had this really spooky music that had lyrics to it. And the funniest part is this mummy did look scary. I mean, they did a good job of of, of creating a mummy costume where he looked creepy. Yeah. And I didn't know this one as a kid, but the lyrics, you know, they're going like, La Momia. And in my head, knowing no Spanish, I'm, I'm figuring they're saying something like, like, beware, he's dangerous. Yes. He's a killer. <laughs> but no, he's saying, the lyrics go something like, he believes in justice, he believes in punishing the, the bad, and... You know, he believes in making sure the sh- children are safe. Yeah. So you have this scary-looking wrestler who is also a babyface. And every week, one of the other Titanes would come in to try to take him down. And just like the old movie monsters, they would throw drop kicks, hit him, do their their pet hold on him, and the mummy wouldn't even move. Never leave his feet. And the fellow who played the mummy was a guy named Juan Los Santos. Excuse me. Who uh, was a wrestler who debuted in 1965 and in 1972 was given the gimmick. And Dos Santos' best known character at the time was El Gitano Ivanov, Ivanov the Gypsy. And he was, he was a really, really good worker, both in the ring and as a heel. Yeah. And. So the way they would, you know, work the matches, be it on TV or on the road, is he would be in one of the opening matches, usually putting over the baby face. Well, not only did La Momia become really, really huge in wrestling, the mummy became, you know, one of the biggest deals in uh, mainstream pop culture. There were magazines had nothing to do with wrestling were writing stories about, you know, this new character on character on Titanic in El Ring. Um, there were reviews of the TV show just talking about what a creative departure it is from, you know, past wrestling. Um, and just to show you just how huge La Momia was. They started wondering which of the other wrestlers were, was wearing the La Momia suit. Oh, wow. And Cardigan probably knew damn well what he was doing because if they would make a guess, he would get defenses and says, no, no, it's not him under the suit. It's not <laughs> him. And you know, he'd make it look like it's a big secret. He doesn't want to be bothered with it. And this is a promotion where it was acknowledged that fans, this is a work. Yeah. I mean, this was I mean they had come. It was exactly. very Exactly. You had a spaceman with yeah. a pacifying gun. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> you had all these crazy gimmicks. So, you know, he made no bones. He, he was not like promoters here who uh, tried to convince you that Rod, Roddy Piper could wave a watch in front of somebody and make him walk like Frankenstein the <laughs> and try to tell you it's real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Cara de Gion would not say who was under the mask and if they made a guess he would just shake his head no, no, that's not it, that's not it. Uh, 
the magazine Hente, which is kind of like a cross between Newsweek and People magazine. Well, it's called Hente. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just trying to give an American comparison. It's, it's people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying the vibe of the magazine. Yeah, yeah, go yeah. Through it. Uh, they named... It was either Gente or Siete Dias. There were two magazines. One of them named La Momia, the pop culture, uh, uh, the number one pop culture figure of the year. Wow. When was that? That was in 1972. Damn. And Cardigan played it smart and kept them wondering who La Momia was, who was under the mask. And I remember mentioning this to uh, you know a friend who wasn't really into wrestling, and I talked about you know all the magazine and news articles about who is La Momia, and they said, "Wow, must have been a slow year for news in Argentina." <laughs> now I'm no history buff, but 1972 was a tumultuous year in the sense that Juan Perón, who had been living in exile for God knows how many years. Uh, was returning to Argentina for the first time. Wow. And it was a hot bushing issue. There were people who loved him, people who despised him and wanted him dead. I mean, you know, th- this was a big deal. And there was a, a talk show that was somewhere along the lines of Meet the Press where they'd have journalists and politicians on debating items. And I guess they were getting in a really, really heated debate about how important it is Juan Perón's return to Argentina and some of them are saying like you know this is going to be one of the biggest days in you know history over the past decades others says oh his coming back means nothing he's a nobody now and they're going back and forth and one of the people who were arguing for uh, you know the notion that Perón's return would be trivial he says he said something along the lines of, I'll tell you what, if you go to the gate where Perón's plane is landing and you see all the journalists and all the, you know, uh, fans of, you know, uh, Juan and Eva Perón, and if you shouted, hey, on the other side of the airport, they're about to reveal the identity of La Momia, he says, I guarantee you two-thirds of those people would, would forget about Perón and go see, you know, go see who Lamomia is. Yeah. So, um, all this time, they were building up t- to a match between Martin Cardigan and Lamomia uh-huh. in Luna Park, which uh, seats 22,000 people. And, you know, wrestling, as popular as wrestling was, I haven't read anything about many sellout crowds in a place the size of Luna Park. They built this up so well that this sold out Luna Park, 22,000 people, to wow. see Martin versus La Momia. And the hype that they did, this is where I feel very lucky because when I started re- watching wrestling toward the end of 1972 and into 73, that current TV season of the show aired here and they had they had the oh god they had just the greatest angle where you know it's known that Martina and the mummy are going to be doing battle very soon at Luna Park 
Lombomia come in, comes in and does his squash match on somebody. And in the main event, Martin Cardigan is wrestling uh, Mercenario Joe. And Martin is starting to defeat Joe with his pet move that was called uh, um, El Cortijo. <laughs> and suddenly you hear the scary mummy music. And you see Martin, like, just his eyes bug out. And he had a manager with a top hat and a cane named Joe Galera. And... So is Martin the heel? That was the weird thing, is one week he'd be the heel, next week he'd be the face. It wasn't even a tweener thing. They'd cheer him when he was fighting the heel, boo him when he wrestled the baby face. Because Lamomia, you're saying Lamomia was a... Was a baby face. Yeah, Mamomia straight baby face. So pretty much as far as the two of them, Martine was more the heel. Oh, okay. And, uh, oh, I should backtrack. In that same episode, every now and then the camera would go into a room in back of the TV studio, and you would see all these hippies having a party dancing to rock music. <laughs> and that's because there was a wrestler on the roster called El Hippie Hair. And uh, he had recently had a feud with Martin Cardigan and when, when the blow-off came I guess they were about to build it up again. So Martin and his manager get out of the ring and they're backing up like with fears. Lamomia is coming towards them and the best part the camera gets right behind Lamomia. So you see Lamomia shaking fingers right in front of you in the screen. It's like you're seeing it from his eye Yeah, view. yeah. And uh Martin grabs his manager's cane and smashes it over Lamomia and it breaks to no avail. And then the camera follows him down the hallways of the uh, TV studio. And Martin and Joe Galera are trying to open every door they can. They're all locked. Yeah. And then finally, there's a door that's unlocked and they go in there. And then the camera goes into that room. Uh, not that same camera, but in a different camera yeah. vantage. And the only room that they could get into was the room full of the hippies. <laughs> and so you see them with us, oh, we got away from the mummy. And then all these hippies are saying, like, there's that son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and they all start attacking Martine and Joe, and they're fighting them off until Hippie Hare and his partner, Hippie Jimmy, run in and start wailing on Martine and Joe Galera. And then the credits start rolling. Oh, that's cool. It was so surreal. I mean, so ahead of its time. Uh,. How and many? the reason, and the reason, you know, I wanted to focus on Lamomia on this episode is Titanes in El Ring was a success from its days in the early '60s up until its last stand in 1988. So it had a good long run, and a lot of a lot of uh, wrestling folk who I discuss wrestling with. When they talk about Titanis and Elring and what they heard, they say, oh, yeah, that was wacky stuff. Oh, you know, sounds like it lasted a few years or... Yeah, and it's like, no, it lasted a lot longer than that. Yeah, and they don't realize a lot of thought was put into this. And it's true, ring work was not its strong forte. But this was a bonafide mainstream icon. How long was the show? Like an hour long? An hour long. Yeah, well, you don't need to work great if it's an hour long show and it's really entertaining. Exactly. Exactly. The matches are always short. uh, And... Because the match is short and they're showing you stuff that's going on, like the guys, the characters and stuff like that. It's like, it's already like... 
You're, you don't really absolutely. Have to do it. Yeah. It, it's 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 entertaining. Yeah. It doesn't drone on. You don't have these all. I mean, look at all that stuff we remember fondly: Mid South Wrestling, the NWA. Yes. All that stuff. It's like if you really think about it, there wasn't all this amazing work rate compared exactly. to what happens exactly. now, where it's like now you kind of want it because it's a, you're watching a two hour show or a two hour twenty minute show, or in some cases a five hour show, and it's like. You have to have that work rate, otherwise you're going to be like dying. Cause exactly, exactly. Cause, how how long can you work yeah, the headlock? I mean, skits I, skits can't skits can't keep it that interesting. Because even if you do skits, it's like what maybe like skits are what, thirty minutes of the segment. Exactly. And, you know, if they start adding stuff, you're like, oh god, they're just filling in time because they're talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. So it, it it's, it's like you don't know exactly what they're trying to do. I mean, yeah. one I think one hour to ninety minutes is. As long as a wrestling show should be for TV. I really, th- I really think that's it should be. Yeah, you because you want the people to crave more. You, yeah, I mean, I know WWE is riding high, and um, but I couldn't imagine seeing three hours of Raw and then saying, "Oh, I can hardly wait for the next wrestling show." Yeah, and the next wrestling show is the next day. Yes, that's <laughs> like, true. Isn't it's it? the worst part. Like, like you're you're basically like devoting all that time, especially when there's a pay per view with the network. You get that too. So yep. it's like you're getting the pay per view, you're getting Raw, then you're getting SmackDown, then you're getting 205 Live. It's like, what day do you rest? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I I haven't thought of buying, you know, pay per views or whatever for almost anything. To I, be honest, because there's so much of everything. Yeah, now. there's so much available, and it's like now people online, you could cut it up to like that one match that you want to see and you could just skip everything else yeah and you know my my motto is leave (laughs) yeah so it's like leave them hungry I think that's I like them doing that yeah it didn't have work grade and stuff like that but it's still like they had characters and that's something that lacks now like there's not a lot of great characters in wrestling because if there is a character they like kind of it has to be like oh he has they have to change him he has to be a great worker or or like the character can't be like like we were just talking on the other show about pure oath and it's like Absolutely. all these guys and, and this this I mean Momia I mean that's like part of the whole that's the Absolutely it was such a huge part of the Titanis and L Ring. I wonder I think it would have had as long a run as it did, but I don't think it would have had the the mainstream pop pop culture uh Yeah icon figure that it turned out to be that it turned out to be I, I don't know if they were, would remember it as well as because you know a lot of the a lot of the titan, the people that were watching Titans were kids you know yes there's a big difference also and you know it's gonna be like hard like those kids kind of keep wanting to stick to watching wrestling like they skip like all, I think all of us go through that period where like you're a teen and you skip a couple years of watching wrestling then all of a sudden you're back again a couple years later absolutely and like when you're older it's not the, that same stuff you thought was cool wasn't that cool when you're the, older the, the, the funny thing is when I would get correspondence from Argentina like you know before internet was really yeah the one one thing that I point out is you would see parents uh taking their kid to a Titanis in El Ring so they could say, "Hey, this is what I watched when I was a little kid. Yeah. Check this out." And you know, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I wonder how big an impact it would have had. I mean, it, it, I mean, they were making the cover of TV Guide. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. And and I guess that's my spiel uh, about Titanes in El Ring, La Momia, and next show. Next show. Oh, I remember the the. Uh, 
what I was going to say. If you ever go on YouTube and look for La Momia, specifically look for the year 1972, because unfortunately Juan Dos Santos, who played La Momia in that second incarnation, was killed in a car wreck with along with another wrestler named Silvio. And they kept using the mummy gimmick, but I don't know if this was in tribute to him, but they made a totally different mummy costume. Yeah. It looked more like a body cast. Oh. It looked hokey to me. Yeah. But it was still the big thing. And the mummy would wrestle Martine in the Luna Park. Because I know the last guy who, one of the last guys who played the La Momia was interviewed a couple of years ago on like TV or something. Yes, yes. Uh, Juan Figueroa, who was yeah. also El Olimpico. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I think he's... Well, he's an Olympico, and he's now in um, CMLL. (laughs) 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 No, he's probably the wrestler I have most in common with because I think he he did seven or eight different um, incredibly strange type gimmicks. He was Dink C at one point. Uh, Oh, what were some other ones? Anything under a hood. Hmm. (laughs) So uh, that's my Titanics, and I'm hoping that in the next Titanis segment I do, I won't be stammering as much as I do right now. Are you be talking about El Ejecutivo yet, or is that still a long way away? <laughs> uh, your request, I will do that next week. Uh, or next, next episode. episode. I should say, next, I should say next week. Next, next week. episode. And away we go. My background consists of basically being a second-generation wrestler pressures of being a second generation wrestler are having to live up to the name of Gore Guerrero, my father, and my brothers, which have been very good wrestlers. I started in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, and it was kind of like, you could say, a part-time wrestling job. It branched off from there, you know, I started with La Empresa Mexicana de Lucha Libre, and then from there I went on to AAA. Wrestling in in Mexico and wrestling in the United States is uh, different and similar. It's a lot quicker and more aerial. Wrestling is wrestling, no matter where you're at. It's a great opportunity for me to be here in WCW. I'm not only going to be competing with people from the United States, but I'm going to be competing with people from Japan and all over the world. And that's what happens when you go big time, when you come into WCW. It's going to be a tough competition here in WCW. Brian Pillman, he is a tremendous athlete. You got an upcoming young talent, Alex Wright. You got the nutrition writer, who's one of the best in the world. You got the Amelie come here. You could say we have a history. and. You know, when I step into the ring with him, I want to make my statement here in WCW. Primero, les mando un saludo a toda la gente latina. Espero que les puedo hacer orgullosos de mí en la lucha que yo hago aquí con WCW. Y siempre voy a estar dando el corazón de un latino que es dando el 100%. Les invito cada vez que Llego a luchar a sus pueblos, a, a su ciudad, y siempre un, un saludo de corazón. De parte de Eddie Guerrero, 
Austins. And we're now going to go to the mid-1990s and talk about the luchadores who were involved with the WCW promotion. Well, now, the last show we like went did an overview. We did an overview that went all over the place. And, yes, and you got a couple of like, people wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my timeline is not... Your timeline was really bad. <laughs> I, did, I, I can't say I watched a lot of WCW. I should mention, not only were you completely off on super crazy, like, the timing... Like, the pay-per-view he was on was, like, in 1999 or something. Like, it wasn't even one of the first ECW. I thought it was 97. No, no, no. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was laughing. Because I even looked it up. I'm like, maybe I'm wrong just to make sure before. (laughs) Like, no, he was wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, like, dates before maybe 1992. I I can't remember to the date, but I can remember what year I saw something. Yeah, yeah. But ask me anything after that, I'm like... I stopped paying attention. <laughs> but I looked up a few matches from the year 1996 because you were saying that's kind of what 95, we're 96. Yes. Yeah, because I mean, figure Eddie Guerrero is like the. We're basically, you know, it's kind of funny because we're talking about how, but we're we're going to focus on the years. But those are probably the first three. Yes. Get up to about August 1996 because really that's August was really when all the other guys started showing up more often. Actually, July with Psychosis showing up. Psychosis showed up earlier, then disappeared for a bit, then reemerged when Rey Mysterio arrived. But um, yeah, you know, it's it was more about when Eddie Conan and Rey Mysterio kind of built the groundwork for um, for what what was going to come. Yes, and one of the things we were talking about, like with Eddie, all three of them. Well, not all, even Conan, because Conan was wrestling a lot of guys that were really good. Yes. In between one man gang. <laughs> just like, right. It was like one of those, like, what the fuck is he doing wrestling? Um, but um, we were talking about how Eddie Guerrero, when he first showed up, um, he basically got to work with Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Jushin Liger, and all these like great wrestlers. And it's like, nowadays, we watch WWE, and when a guy shows up, it's like, you don't really know who the guys are that they're facing. I mean, back then... Eddie Earl got a chance to work with guys who were, like, really, like, no names, you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, he was the gold standard wrestling other gold standards. Yeah, I mean, it's it like, was, it wasn't like, oh, this guy, and nobody knew who he was. It was this guy, people knew who he was. And he was wrestling guys who people knew, like, who they were, too. So it was like, it wasn't like, oh, is that guy any good? No, you knew they were good. It was like... Absolutely. And one thing I really liked about Eddie is he's one of those guys who could probably wrestle anybody and adapt to their style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We were talking earlier, one of the matches I saw from that year was his match versus Ric Flair, where Elizabeth and woman were at ringside. And I want to say the referee was Randy Anderson. If I'm correct, it's creepy to think that Everybody involved in that match has passed away, except for Ric Flair. Yeah, and Ric Flair lived a pretty crazy life. I mean, he almost exactly. died in a in a plane um, plane crash, though. He almost died in yeah, very early yeah. in his career, yeah. nineteen seventy five. So, yeah, and not only did he become one of the greatest wrestlers ever, but he he also maintained the party lifestyle to the yeah, max. Yeah. You know? It's like a Keith Richards yeah. um, syndrome. I was I was trying to remember like the last episode we were talking about Eddie Guerrero's debut, like 
when he first showed up in WCW. Yes. And I was totally off because I was talking about how it was DDP versus him. And it was actually Jushin Thunder Liger, which is kind of like... Oh, it was Liger. Liger. And, um, well, he wrestled a, a house show against um, Dean Malenko. And then, like, mm-hmm. his first TV match was on a... Actually, the first appearance was a, was a video where he did a... Where he talked about it, who he was, his career. They did this with Dean Malenko also, where they introduced... Mm-hmm. They talked about... So it kind of tells you they kind of were like a big deal when they first came into WCW and were treated like a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. the problem was that they were treated a big deal, but they also had like way bigger deals beyond that, like Hulk Hogan and, and all the Lex Luger, all these other guys who were showing up. And, and so it was kind of like, oh, they're a big deal, but they're not that big a deal. Exactly. And, and just from what I've read, it sounds like people like Hogan and Nash were very good at using their... Their uh, their charm, yeah, to like kind of keep everybody yeah, else, yeah, and convince people that what was the term they used for them, vanilla midgets, yeah, uh, you and, and everybody that I knew who would watch a show like Nitro were watching it for the people like Eddie, Gr- yes, oh, I know, Jericho, like, yeah, then the Ray Mysterio and all those guys, and you would like kind of like sit through the rest of it and be like, if it was good, it was great. But it'd be like a lot of times it was like, uh, or you'd probably watch it more to see who would show up. Also, like really, like that I was the other that. thing. I that did was that the frequently. Thing. And then you know, I, the irony about me being so bad about the dates was, I think that was the last time I religiously watched an American wrestling show every Monday night. Yeah. And if it was um, good enough, I'd even watch the replay like at one in the morning, two in the morning. Something yeah, like that. and you you know it it was what was, was so amazing. Like we talk about nowadays, like. We have so much content available from wrestling, but like we don't watch it because there's really nothing really that you really want to watch unless it's New Japan and you want to watch Okada versus Omega that you watched. Uh, there's maybe once in a while there's a good match on CML, but I mean WCW. Like I was looking through like the results for um, when Eddie showed up in um, for WCW, and it's like one week he would be on Nitro wrestling Dean Malenko, the following week he'd be wrestling Chris Benoit on a Saturday night. Then he wrestled Chris Benoit on, on another on a worldwide. Then he wrestled like uh, Jerry Lynn when he was Mister JL. Alex Wright, he would yes. wrestle Alex Wright. He would wrestle Brian Pillman. It's like constantly there was somebody Absolutely. like. Absolutely, there was always something new. And and before before they had uh, the the slow motion antics of people like Nash and Hogan, they were really pushing. Those as they yeah, put all the those guys. Yes. they were really pushing. Yes. and it was it was. I, great! It was great wrestling. It was great TV. It was kind of interesting because when you look at the results and what what was going on, you kind of noticed the cruiserweights kind of were still getting a lot of interest, mm-hmm. and because they became such a as it progressed and it became the cruiserweights, it became like a bigger deal for the the, t- the viewing audience. The guy who kind of got screwed out of the three that we're going to talk about, Eddie and Conan and and Rimstow, really was Conan. Yeah, <laughs> that's he, true. He got thrown into the Dungeon of Doom thing, and it was kind of like, oh yes, my god, that, yes. who wants to watch that? And his matches weren't like like I was saying, like him being a heavyweight, he was wrestling like one man gang. I mean, come on, like seriously, what's what are the odds of him looking good against? In one fact, man what gang? I remember most about him was he was he was such a great presence on the mic. He didn't even have to say anything. That yeah, night. he just did his orale and. Well, that that was later, when How he first much started. Later was that? That was like when he started doing um, Dungeon of Doom, like a little more. When he okay. first started, he wasn't doing all Again, that. Again, my time, timeline. Yeah, is, he wasn't doing that. But he's because even in Dungeon of Doom, he would do it, but it wasn't still like what it became with the yeah. with the Wolf Pack. Yes, it wasn't compared to that. So he was still a long way from that. 
when he was when he was a baby face, clean cut, clear cut baby face. Mm-hmm. When he first got there, he wasn't doing those promos. He was doing a lot of like more like what he sounds like on uh, uh, when he what he sounds like when he's being um, very professional, right? Like like yes, because they were doing. I was watching this. Um, there, there's an interview that he did with uh, Mean Gene where he's got an eye patch. Mm-hmm. He wrestled a couple of episodes with an eye patch. Well, he had an optical nerve damage or something in his eye, and he was being very professional, sounding very serious. And it's like it doesn't sound anything like you were saying. Like you're thinking about the orale arriba la raza. That was that was still a couple. That was a ways away Again, from, my time from happening. <laughs> yeah. So so with 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 Eddie, like we were talking about the whole. Um, the whole 1995 that closing out mm-hmm. 1996 he kind of like he was still very pushed but remember he was splitting his time with new japan yes. as black tiger so not only were not only was he like well he was doing a lot of stuff in wcw like he would do the the few matches with benoit like you were talking about with rick flair and mm-hmm. stuff like that but he was like black tiger he was wrestling at, he was in the super um the best of the super juniors tournament he actually won that yes so it was like a little more um there was a little more of a, a, a he was getting more of an opportunity in new japan and i think wcw was like more of a back back you know background type of thing right. for him and that's when ray mysterio like in the summer showed up and he kind of just blew it up really um conan i mean with conan it was kind of like like I was saying, like he came in with, as the Mexican heavyweight champion. He was splitting his time with AAA and um, and WCW, and um, kind of like it didn't really like. I think he kind of like. I don't think they understood what he was because I think it was a little easier for them to accept the smaller guys doing faster paced matches and doing all this yeah. stuff. And Conan was more of a a heavyweight. He had a fun. Yeah, he, he actually had a good match with Flair. Like in, um, I'm trying to remember Bash at the Beach. Bash at the Beach. You know, I never saw that. And that was the show that had um that had um the the, the Hogan turn. Oh, that was the show. Yeah. No way. So you probably did watch it, but you don't remember. I do, I remember seeing the yeah. Hogan turn, but I don't remember. You might not seen the entire the show because because yeah, they aired that on Nitro. The 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 Hogan mm-hmm. turn they aired on Nitro. But yeah, like it was more of a even like like he was in shows. Think about this. Conan had that good match with uh, at Bash at the Beach. What was the highlight? The Hogan turn. Yeah, um, he had actually. A, you know what? I remember. I did not see it because I remember. You saw Nitro, I think, and saw that. I saw it after, and the then fact, afterwards. And the only reason I know is because um, around that time, I just happened to run to Mike Tanay and his wife at the Brea Mall. <laughs> And he asked you what was going on. He's like, "Did you I, see?" No, I, I know. I was like, "What the hell are you doing in Brea, dude?" Like Mike Tanay, and I, he grew up there. Yeah, which surprised me. But I remember him telling me about the Hogan turn and what he was explaining to me, just how chaotic it was and how it went down. So I know I had not seen it right away. <laughs> oh, so um, and then this other one, um, Conan wrestled in the when he uh, beat. He actually defended the title against one man gang at super brawl mm-hmm. of that year like in uh, february 11th um what was the big highlight of that show super brawl horrible pay-per-view but what was it most remembered for well if it's a horrible pay-per-view it didn't involve a match obviously. yes i was gonna say was that the one where the midget planted a bomb pillman the pillman um i respect you booker man oh <laughs> line on, on kevin sullivan so it's like it was like always like something that yeah, that was a horrible show. I actually saw that. I, you know, I remember the thing leading up to it, which looked so bad, where uh, 
it was the TV studio match where somebody hits Pillman from behind the curtain. It was right before the I Respect You Booker Man thing. Yeah. Because I remember people saying, oh, I think there was some sort of shoot there, aren't we? No, it was a very badly executed... Uh, yeah, because I think after that, they did the they did the segment where um, Arn Anderson wanted Pillman to apologize to Kevin Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And then Kevin um, Arn took off his belt and whipped him. Remember that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was another one. Yeah, but it was, it was weird because when you look at Conan, he really kind of didn't have a lot of the... He didn't get the same opportunities that Eddie got. I mean, Eddie, you just go through it, and it's like, it, he was wrestling, like, every single, uh... Oh, actually, Eddie challenged Conan for the U.S. title on the other horrible pay-per-view that year. <laughs> Uncensored, if you remember. That was another horrible pay-per-view. Uncensored, uh... That was such... That match was okay. It was the opening match. But now, that was really bad. I think that was the one that had, um, Hogan... In that all those cages, remember those uh, multi the the multi tier oh, cage yeah. match. Um, but there was actually bef- the one good moment in that is um, I even remember that because I remember watching it constantly. Regal versus Fit um, Fit Finley. Oh, I definitely didn't see that. Yeah, show. that was really good. But everything else was really bad. Um, then you were talking about Eddie Guerrero wrestling Ric Flair. Oh my God, that was a great. That was a. I think that was before um, Hall and Nash first showed up. I think yeah. I think it was might have been the week before Hall showed up. It was that soon. Yeah, I think it was the week before because I remember that. Well, and watching that match, you know, I know you can't go back to the old days and work exactly the way they did, but the timing that they had in that match and the way Eddie sold his injury and you even had it being the game change of the match when yeah. he successfully. Frog splashes Ric Flair, but his knee is gone by that point. He can't cover him. Yeah. And, I mean, Flair really put him over because yeah, of Yeah, because Flair did the figure for him. Basically, Eddie couldn't get out of it because he was yeah, so injured. But yeah, but he still needed a woman to come grab onto him yeah. to, since the win. So, I mean, yeah, Flair, I, really, I, Flair really put him over on it, that. It's really interesting because you watch that first year of Eddie and, and really Eddie more than anybody and how, how, what he was doing. Really Eddie, Benoit, and Malenko, those yeah. guys. And you could tell there was some interest in them, like actually like having something develop. And then all of a sudden the following week, you know, Scott Hall shows up and everything changes. Mm-hmm. The focus goes towards the NWO angle. Um, the cruiserweights still stay like very relevant, yes. but it takes a while because because Eddie and Benoit and the more more so those two were kind of more of a, a kind of like a tweener group. Like they were mm-hmm. like they didn't want to use them as cruiserweights immediately, but at the same time they were good enough to compete with them. But they want to use them more as like the challenging for the the second tier titles in WCW. Right. Yeah. So um, Flair, of course. Eddie had a really good match against Flair at um, at Hogwild. I never watched those. <laughs> I, I never, never watched, watched those either. Any of the Hogwild. I watched that match because I had somebody make a compilation for me, and I was like, "Put that match on." I don't want to watch the rest of <laughs> Hogwild. Um, then Eddie actually had a, you know, we'll talk about it on Rey Mysterio just because Rey Mysterio actually had like a really insane schedule, like where you could actually make a case for him being the best wrestler in 1996 because mm-hmm. like the matches the quality of talent he was facing was amazing his schedule like but um Eddie Guerrero actually wrestled DDP and uh, I think they had a few him and DDP were feuding at that time they had a match in Clash of Champions then later on when they were doing the US title tournament 
Eddie ended up being um, DDP to become the U.S. champion. And, you know, after that, it kind of just fell, it kind of just went more towards the NWO and stuff like that. And and the longer stuff like that went on, the more nonsensical it Yeah, and, you know, really, like, when it first, when they first started, I mean, they would do the whole, like, like like we were talking about last time, they would zoom in to something insignificant and zoom out of the match, and it just, it just really lowered the quality of what they were doing. Yeah, it really did. It, it was like the, a little ADHD uh, seemed like a slap in the had. face to those guys and I could understand maybe they were upset about that <clears throat> well and, and, and also I mean as I recall it like once it got to the point where the people like Benoit Eddie Guerrero were, were definitely secondary very secondary characters the yeah. distant second I knew that all the other luchadores from, from uh, Mexico we're way beyond. We're gonna get even pushed down. Because I mean, the harder. first the first yeah. two years. I mean, you look at ninety six, ninety seven. These guys were really like they were doing something with these guys. Yes, it really kind of started changing like in ninety eight, night like ninety nine. Where where even like these guys that they had like Eddie, what had them there was that they were working WCW and yes. New Japan. But then you start seeing them not working as much in New Japan. And like I think being in WCW so much, it was like yeah, you know, it's not, it's not as, it's not as. Fun. And it, it was no secret even before, you know, uh, Eddie Malenko and you know, I left for WWE. It was no secret that a lot of people, you know, in in their position were really like just feeling discouraged, yeah, disrespected, and I'm trying to remember. You remember, you know, when Billy Kidman was, you know, in the cutoff jeans and the yeah. tanked up, and suddenly all the other guys on top, like even Big Show, when he came in one week in cutoff jeans. <laughs> I'm not joking. Sur- yeah. sur- suddenly people started dressing down and dressing, yeah. and I just thought. What's going on? Is nobody calling the shots? Yeah. And then they started bringing out that gimmick, like the maestro. Yeah, that's years later. I know that's years later, yeah. but but I'm, I'm after after when when did the tide turn from the luchadores like get sunk to WCW just becomes pure yeah, that was nonsense. Like, that was ninety nine. Basically, it was pretty much done by that. Yeah, it kind of seems like when they did the finger poke thing with Hogan and um. And Kevin Nash, that kind of started like to lower. It might have been before that. It really just, it just kind of, it just got to the point where it was like, it was ridiculous. As the train passes, that makes so much noise. <laughs> exactly, it distracts us. Petticoat Junction. Yeah, um, yeah but you know, it, the the guy that really was amazing in 1996 was uh, Ray Mysterio Jr. I mean, just amazing. Oh yes. He starts off the year in ECW, feuding with Juventud Guerrera. Mm-hmm. I mean. Those matches, a lot of people praise those matches. Those are I mean, the he, was, matches. he had the Psychosis matches in '95 in ECW, but Psychosis was the first one that they brought to um, WCW for that one match for some reason. Ooh, and so he brought in Hooven too. Then that was like the because a couple of the matches I did watch is I watched one of uh, Ray versus uh, Dean Malenko, another one of him uh, with Hoovy. Yeah, and it's just so eerie since since I haven't watched them since around the time they aired. Yeah. It's so funny, just see, not not just seeing him younger, but he he was a super talented wrestler. But it was before he was totally at at his peak. Yeah, and it, it was just so interesting seeing him back in the day when he's still like 
going toward the big time. Yeah, but, and, and I remember even at that time thinking, wow, this is great that he's made it this far. You yeah, know? you know, the, the interesting thing with Ray was that he was splitting his time like with um, AAA, WCW, and then War. Remember the Japanese promotion, War? Oh, God, yeah. He was working a lot of shows there for War. Like, he would yeah. work, like, like a, couple of, a couple of shows. But, so he was actually, like, pushed all over the place. Like, I think they everybody wanted the Rey Mysterio Juventus because in AAA he was feuding with Rey Juventus Guerrero, remember? Mm-hmm. Yes. He would have a couple matches with Psychosis, but it was mostly... He, they had already gone to Juventus as his main rival. And uh, with WCW, I mean... His debut, of course, Dean Malenko. I mean, what better way to debut it? Oh uh, hell yeah! Dean Malenko, back to back nights, you get Dean Malenko. I mean, that's like the that's like the perfect way. And Dean Malenko actually, like, yeah, he would ground him, like, do a lot of mat work, but he would actually give him some offense. He'd actually let him mm-hmm. do the crazy, like, the, the the big dive that he needed to do to get over everything. And I mean, those matches were all memorable. And I mean, it's just like one of those things where you're just. I don't know. It's just crazy, like to think about that. Like he debuts in Great American Bash, then the following pay per view, he finally beats Dean Malenko for the cruiserweight title. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the about the actually he he actually faced psychosis at um if I remember correctly he faced psychosis at at Bash at the Beach. Remember that because that was mm-hmm. like that was the good match on that show. Like that was actually <laughs> that was the, the token good, good match. Well, no, Bash at the Beach was actually pretty good. That was actually one. That was like the one pay per view that was actually really good. <laughs> He wins the cruiserweight title the following night in Nitro. Remember that? Okay. Yeah, he wins it against Malenko. But I mean, just think about this. Like, he had an August where he wrestled. Like, he had to defend the title after he won the title against Malenko. The next night at a TV tapings, he defends it against Psychosis. Then he defends it in August against Ultimo Dragon multiple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dean Malenko multiple times. Juventus Guerrera multiple times, Super Calo at Fall Brawl on Nitro, and then he 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 even has still extra more matches with Juventus Guerrera. So it's like you're just like you're just going like the the amount of matches he had from like August through October. Man, that guy was like all over the place. Then he finally loses the title to Dean Malenko and and at um, Halloween Havoc. Um, kept challenging. Uh, that's when Ultimo Dragon, remember he had the J-Crown? Mm-hmm. He had all those battles. Remember, like we were saying, everybody had that picture <laughs> yes. of him holding yes. it up. But it's like, you just think of all the matches Rey Mysterio had, like facing Huben Tergura, um, Dean Malenko, um, Ultimo Dragon, Jushin Liger, mm-hmm. Psychosis. I mean, I'm guessing Rey Mysterio Jr. had to have been like one of the top ten guys in yeah, 1996 or top absolutely, five absolutely absolutely because i guess what was the only track- guys i could think of are like kawada and misawa yeah. like and akiyama and kobashi being like ahead of him yeah and i guess what i was saying when i saw that match of him with dean malenko was when he was very early in wcw and i guess what i'm trying to say was he was already damn good yeah but he wasn't seasoned as he would become i mean he was really good at Oh, he was yeah, great. He was, no, no, no. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like, oh, he was a bit green back then. No. No, he but he got, but he went from great to getting even better. I mean, how do you not working with that variety yeah. of guys? But I think that might have been his best year, like, of, like, while he was in WCW. Because wow. they started switching. I think 97, oh, 97 was also just as great. He, that's when he had the match with Eddie Guerrero and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the 98 really was Juventus Guerrero's, like, coming out party. I, I had a friend who, um... During that time, when it was Eddie and Ray, um, it, it was like some sort of 
counseling session at a group home. Kids who were kind of yeah. like into trouble and stuff like that. And she said all of a sudden on Monday nights, the kids were like going to barter and try to get get the sessions to end start earlier and end earlier. You know, like these big, big group counseling sessions. And she finally said, well, why is this just a big deal? And they're saying, Nitra's on Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero. Yes. And they specifically said those two. Yeah, and I, I remember because a lot of my, like, I had some cousins that would, they would watch WWE. And they would watch Raw. And I'm like, why are you guys watching that crap? And they're like, yeah. why? I go, you guys should be watching Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio and these guys, the luchadors. And they, like, watched it, Benoit, and they're like, oh, my God, you were right. It's so much better than what It was amazing. Because at that time, I mean, they were just killing WWE at that time. Yeah, they were killing them in the ratings and quality-wise, mm-hmm. the entire show. That show could, for, there was a short time that show could have gone four hours. I would have watched mm-hmm. the whole thing. And I'm, I'm telling not- you, like, you go through, the, the, the like, those shows, and I remember, like, WCW Saturday Night, you would get Rey Mysterio versus, like, even the most random dude, and it would be, like, a way better match than anything you're getting right now on on WWE or or CMLL or anything like right now because it's like so much better what the absolutely I can't remember when it was um, but I remember there was a, a Nitro match that Rey Mysterio had with Steven Regal uh-huh. and there's such a huge size difference but one Mysterio so great and Regal such a supreme worker that when Mysterio was getting offense on Regal, Regal made it look so convincing. It's not like he took this crazy bump for you know one flying move. Yeah, it's kind of like you know he's he's broken down move after move and then takes you know a clumsy type heel bump. Yeah, Regal and, ha- Regal had a feud with Psychosis. I mean, and it was actually they. Yeah. Had, I think they had one of the good. One, they had a good match. In, and I, and, in I, and and uh, I had some people arguing with me saying, "No, nothing was believable at that match." Remember how, how the many, crowd popped like a motherfucker? How many people constantly would talk about Rey Mysterio not being believable? Remember? Oh, yes. Exactly. That was like a big yes. talking point back yes. in, like, I think, 98 through 2001, probably. That was like a big... And even in WWE. But since I didn't really follow WWE, it's like, I think I was already done with all that stuff. But I remember when people would be like, man, that's not believable. How is Rey Mysterio going to beat um, Ric Flair or Steven yeah. Regal? And it's like, well, you know, he's a lot better than those guys. <laughs> and it's funny when people talk about believable. Okay, I'm going to watch this believable match. This guy just twisted this guy's arm and flung him into the ropes. Yes. And the guy magically vaulted back off the ropes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I do agree that if Mysterio just went in there on his first drop kick, Regal flew to the side of the ring. That's way over the top. Yeah, yeah. There, but, there, there are ways to make it way over the top. And, you know, Shawn Michaels was one of the guys who did that. Remember the match with Hogan that became like the... A known thing where he would just bump like crazy. Oh yeah, he would do like these really silly bumps off of Hogan, and it was like it's not something that you know it can happen. But it's like Regal didn't do that. Regal wasn't like that that crazy with um. Yeah, no, no, and and Regal really made him shine. Yeah, which you know, I think if you're good, you're good, and instead, like it's it's up to the promoter to like or the booker to figure out if you could he can make you believable. Yeah, exactly. It's up to them. And if he is wrestling somebody regal size who wasn't wasn't good. as good, yes. then, the it, then the match would have looked like a bomb. You know, like the, if size, Mysterio, the size difference might have made a big difference. If Rey Mysterio was wrestling like Al Green, 
it would have been good, right? Or if it was like yeah. one of those dudes, it's like it would have been a lot different. But he was wrestling Regal, who's really good. And Regal, Regal made a lot of guys, like he wasn't one of those guys who was like, oh, this guy's too short for me and he's not good enough. He actually would work with these, or this guy's Mexican and he's not good. He would actually have good matches with these guys. It Absolutely, like, yeah. yeah. It's funny, we are talking about the little versus big not being believable. Um... Bernie Wright, who is Alex Wright's cousin, I believe, uh-huh. um, or his uncle, I can't, his uncle, I think, but, you know, he, he wrestled in Calgary and, uh, Vancouver under the name Athel Foley. Uh-huh. You know, he was a very, he's a skinny dude, Yeah, but tough as nails, but, uh, one of the boys up in Vancouver was telling me that there was some wrestler a lot larger than him who didn't want to sell for him because he was little. And one, if you're a member of the Wright family, you're pretty tough. Yeah. And uh, apparently uh, Bernie Wright was holding his own. And then, I mean, holding his own is he wasn't totally getting demolished by this big dude. And the guy was pretty much bullying him around. And the guy tried to put him like in a chancery. And they said, you just heard the guy scream at the top of his lungs. And I guess (laughs) Bernie Wright just... uh, just bit into his arm <laughs> to where you could see the you know where it was like a tattoo yeah and then and then people afterwards saying well, what was that all about says and he said something along the lines of well you know you know I think I'm a, you know I think I you know know more shooting moves than he does but he's so much bigger than me and I figured well he's hurting me so what do I do bite him <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like it, it, I I think I think Mysterio, but I mean, I think I think guys who are recognized talent, they're gonna go, they're gonna do whatever they can to help that, like make that guy look good, you know, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and I mean, even Flair, I mean, Flair, Eddie Guerrero. Like, well, the way he put Eddie Guerrero yeah, over, like not and not just saying Randy Savage when he wrestled Benoit. I mean, yes, yes. Randy Savage was a huge star, and Benoit, yeah, you know, he's a known name, but I mean, he was known, but. For Randy Savage to have that type of match with him, and Malenko, even when he had uh, matches with Flair, he would go out of his way to do. Stuff. You know what? I don't think I ever saw a Flair. I think Malenko match. I think I think Flair with uh, with Conan was the one where it was kind of because <laughs> I know Co- Flair doesn't isn't very fond of Conan. So. He isn't. I, mean, I remember that Flair went down a few pegs in my book when I heard the podcast where he uh, his podcast where he had Eric Bischoff uh-huh. on when they became friends. Yeah. And whatever happened to that Mexican? <laughs> yeah, Something yeah, he's like at Conan. Whatever he says, oh, you wanted me to job to Conan, and yeah, he says, uh, and he says, says, yeah, whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, like uh, are you, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, yeah. So and you know, Flair's probably job to like way worse. Like even guys who weren't even half the name. Oh Conan. hell yeah, hell. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying Conan was like the like a great great wrestler, but it's like. He was a name. I mean, he was somebody who was known. He exactly, was, and, was, and, he, and you think and, you know he had some like I think that, that I think that was something that WCW really dropped the ball. Really was with with Conan, Eddie, and Ray, where they really never really got behind them for to like build them up or anything. Like because I think this year that the year we're talking about nineteen ninety six, they were really mm-hmm. behind them more so Ray and Eddie, and I think Conan they kind of lost. But I kind of have a feeling a lot of that might have been Conan being a little too. Um, Outspoken, Conan, yeah. <laughs> Conan being Conan, and just it, like we said before, yeah. his on one hand, his 
confidence and outspokenness has gotten in places, yeah. but it's also burned bridges yeah. too. So I think, but I mean, hey, he, he credit him, give him credit for like getting all these guys uh, uh, into absolutely, and I'm sure a lot of yeah. them would be the first to thank him for yeah. it. So yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk more about this later on about the whole WCW thing. Um, I really enjoyed. I, I like I said that was like my favorite time for of wrestling. That and. 1985, 86 with uh, Mid South Wrestling. That's really the stuff I enjoyed most. It's really the stuff I. So it's like it's not. Yeah. There's a lot, and you know, there's a lot of lucha that I really enjoyed. Also, the the mystical run and the perils of Mala that era. I mean, I tend to enjoy a lot of stuff. It's like I'm, I don't think I'm not. I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, I, I don't like it nowadays. Yeah, you know what? You know what? It, it, it's it's not that. It's not that I'm going to say it sucks because obviously yeah. there are people watching it. It's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like you know. like I do I do the lucha talk. I do these podcasts, and it's like I'll watch lucha underground, and yeah, you know, I'm not as excited about it like as other people who watch it. But you know, there's other. St- I'm not gonna like be like constantly talking about oh on on air. I'm not gonna be like oh this was horrible and spend all my time talking about it because there's other stuff I can watch and, and be entertained with. You know exactly. You know uh, you know same thing with CML and. I think people who follow me on Twitter know that <laughs> that's something I complain about. <laughs> but it's like, like, but it's not, honestly, I'll watch the Friday show. But like, why would I worry about watching like these other shows that are because there's so much available? And worst case, I'll watch something old. You know, I don't mind wa- rewatch. Hey, I, I rewatched the Eddie Girl Justin, Justin Liger match. I mean, that oh, was like, hey, you know, like, one of my one of my favorite years for wrestling was 1983. I uh, whether it was Japan, Mexico. That was just a great year yeah. for, especially Japan TV, New Japan TV. I mean, you know, with with uh, you know Dynamite Kid and other people, Animal Hamaguchi, Killer Khan. Yeah, everybody blended in beautifully with each other, and yeah, and, and I think uh, I think every year you could find something that was good. Yeah, and I think everybody kind of has a year that they're more fond of than yeah. others. But uh, like you said, the Mid South when it was really. Visible, yeah. I mean, that was great TV. That yeah. was really well booked. That was an hour too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Moral of the story: one hour television works. Yeah, actually, WCW had enough talent where they actually could do like they felt. That's the amazing thing. They had um, what was it? Nitro by that point was three hours towards the end of nineteen ninety six. Yes, it was two well, hours. Well, it, it was two, it two you, three hours more or less. It makes you wonder not so much with a huge promotion like WWE, but when you see other people trying to get. TV, you know, smaller group, it's like, how are they intending to make money? Because they have these long, drawn-out shows that aren't very good. That makes you say, I don't want to see any more of this. If you had a half-hour show and cut out all the bad stuff, it's like, (laughs) you you probably wouldn't watch it. It's called Impact. (laughs) In fact, that's one of the ones I was kind of referring to. Honestly, like, it's funny, um, Impact... Hey, we're going off topic on this, yes. but it's like I will watch sometimes, but it's I think there's just a certain feeling I get from watching it that it's not as great as um I think they'd have to change it, revamp it completely because it's not it'd, my, it'd be almost a, like and you know Jeff Jarrett's back, so it's like it's no real big difference exactly. It's not stuff I liked before, and it's not, probably going to be worse now with Jeff Jarrett. Well, actually, it's just as bad, really. It's yeah, not, I wouldn't say, worse. <laughs> but no, I think you made a good point that. Keeping wrestling so short so that you can get people to want to shell out some money to see more of what yeah. you have rather than stretching it out all night and 
make people saying, please, whatever. Yeah, yeah we, we were talking about wrestling. We were talking about 1996, and we just mentioned there was a bunch of pay-per-views that were horrible in WCW. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, and in fact, I'm trying, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to jog my memory because I bought pay-per-views, but I know I didn't buy every one. <clears throat> and I can't remember if I was doing it for which luchadors were in it. I know I... I don't think I ever bought it for any of the Hogan or Piper type of stuff. Yeah. Damn, I almost wish I kept a journal. It's, it's it, so it was so, it was it was for me it was easier just to like wait the next day because they had Nitro and Raw. So, you know, if you could back in the or before the internet era, mm-hmm. if you could survive weeks not knowing what happened or watching it on, on, on Scramble Vision. I'm pretty sure I could wait like the next day <laughs> on a Monday. Absolutely, oh god, was, yeah, hell yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, like I was fine yeah. with that, but it's like it's like it had to be like a really good show for me to watch it. I know I watched um, I watched Bash at the Beach in Scramble Vision. I do remember that. I like the Scramble I watched Vision. Scramble That's great. Vision. The thing of the past. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I did watch it. I would, but my uncle taught me like he taught me at that time uh-huh. like even before that he taught me like if you switch the the you press the the channel up and down fast mm-hmm. enough you would get it lasting for a little longer or sometimes it would show up and work. Really? Yes. And they work for a bit, but then like at ninety, like a couple of years later. They changed the way, um, you know how cable companies constantly change? Mm -hmm. They changed it to another one, and they switched it to something that was a little more, um, it wasn't working like that. It would cover, remember, they would cover it up completely. One of my favorite things is to have memories of me trying to, when I was 10 years old. Jimmy up the... Yeah, play with the antenna, or tilt the TV just right so the reception comes in from San Diego or something. And almost every wrestling fan has some story like that when they started watching, trying to mess with what limited technology they have to see wrestling from another region or something like that. Yeah, but it it was that's how I watched that, and I only watched the the last part. It was like I wasn't watching the entire show. I was like, I'll watch the end of it. (laughs) And then years later, when I started tape trading, was when I got the the entire show. So yeah, okay, very cool. You know, one one thing I speaking of like the eighties era, you know, I'd love in a future episode to uh, focus on some of the feuds back then because yeah, yeah, so much is on YouTube. Yeah. There was some great lucha there. I mean... Yeah, the Sangre Chicana, MS, the yes. um My still... Yeah, you're the one who turned me on to yeah. the Sangre Chicana phenomenon. The Misioneros versus anyone, really. Hell yeah. The, um, the, the Misioneros causing um, causing Santo to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the retirement yeah. match of yeah. El Santo. And Paraguayo, how oh. awesome he was and how yes. people... Yes. How angry we get when people tell us like, was Pero Aguayo as good as Pero Junior? And it's like, no, he was better. <laughs> like, no, he was better because Pero Junior really. I mean, he 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 had a couple of years where he wasn't really good. Yeah, and he had he. Had, but he was really good. He was really good. Oh, he I'm was not great. saying he was great. Pero Junior. I mean, if you put him, if you ask me where he is, he's definitely a oh, Hall of Fame. There, he's definitely. a Hall of Fame wrestler. I mean, you know, but, but you know, he he. He had some difficulties in life. Late in the point. years, and then when he kind of revived his career, mm-hmm. the tragedy happened, and he passed away. And it's like, yes, yeah. yes. But but his father, to the best of my knowledge, his father was somebody who showed up and did his job and did it well. He was I mean, amazing. He was really yeah. really good. Yeah, I I remember seeing him for the first time. Again, it was um, 
we can talk about undercard shows where for Segura and Eric Casas Black Terry were like the undercard oh God, for, I, for Nicole Sound or any Mexico shows. See those. Or, 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 or the or the UWA shows where, where the undercard was like this all-star like caliber show. Yeah. What? <laughs> like Chris Adams is working like an like in the middle of the card match versus somebody really good and it's like holy shit what's it, going it's on? yeah it's amazing to see that yeah. I, first time I saw Aguayo was against Chino Cho yeah. in 81 and I, it was one of those epiphany moments yeah he was so good at looking like he was destroying somebody when yeah you know, he, he was, was really awesome oh man he was so good as a heel that he had to turn babyface and it was kind of absolutely it was hard to boo him because he was such a like a, an icon and everything yeah I mean and, and those things like from like you know, the, the, there's also like I like the Jackie Fargo who was a heel, but once too many people like him, yeah, can't take him seriously as a heel anymore. So Flair, same thing with Flair. Flair. Although I think Flair, a lot, part of it is Flair being stubborn and wanting to be heel. Exactly. And it's like it's not. But it's not the same yeah, thing. You're, Everybody you're loves him. popular. Yeah, you got to be the guy who people love and you know looking for revenge and stuff like that. At, at a certain point, I think it was like 50 when like it finally became. You In know, fact, official. the first the first time. Je- uh, F- Jeff Physico ever saw Negro Casas. It was when Flair was going through his, his a babyface run with with uh, uh, feuding with like Nikita Koloff in I think it was eighty five, eighty six, eighty six I think, and Casas was a babyface at the time. And so we go to the Olympic, and when Casas is selling, he's like, "Oh my God, that's like Ric Flair." Uh, Casas I, is amazing, and I never thought of it because it was only maybe the third time I saw Casas. But the way Casas was selling, it was classic Flair babyface selling, where you know, you, you know, it's working. I almost want to kick the Rudos ass. We need more. Nero, so we well. need more guys like Nero Casas in wrestling. Just yes, he gets please. it. Yeah, yeah, he's it. Yeah, yeah. So next show we'll probably talk about the Viano Three um, Atlantis big match from Absolutely. 2000. One of that the classics, feud. and it's weird to think how long ago yeah. it was. And we'll probably talk about you'll have your Titanes the ring. Um, I will do El Ejecutivo next time. Yeah, okay. The wrestling executive, complete with telephone and secretary at ringside. Yeah. And so from from us to you, have a great couple of weeks, and we look forward to you uh, listening to the next podcast and between now and then I'm going to pretend to work on avoiding my terrible stammer that I have when I talk so so until then uh, er, da, da, da. take it easy como le digo a mis compañeros y a mis amigos más a los enmascarados hasta la vista babies Ush, recuérdame, come frutas y verduras, que la sombra de super porque los cubra y los proteja. Ush.